0: Pastor Patrick Hines here, and I'm going to press on uh, in the Canons of Dort. Um, Here we left off uh, in the section on assurance and doubts concerning assurance. So I'm going to go ahead and move on here. The scripture, moreover, testifies that believers in this life have to struggle with various carnal doubts and that under grievous temptations, they do not always feel this full assurance of faith and certainty of persevering. But God, who is the Father of all consolation, does not suffer them to be tempted above what they are able, but will with the temptation make also the way of escape, that they may be able to endure it. First Corinthians 10, 13. That's a great passage. And by the Holy Spirit, again, inspires them with the comfortable assurance of persevering. Now, that's the normal Christian life, and that's the, the life that's lived by by God's people in, in every age of world history and church history. Uh, we, we struggle with grievous temptations, and uh, we deal with sin, and God at times will lift his hand of restraint uh, and uh, allow us to get a glimpse of the depths of darkness that are still in us, and we can come under his fatherly displeasure and chastening hand, and, and then he brings us back and helps us Be assured again, and helps us to understand all over again that it's all of grace. The whole thing is of grace. Article 12, this assurance as an incentive to godliness. This certainty of perseverance, however, is so far from exciting in believers a spirit of pride, or of rendering them carnally secure, that on the contrary, it is the real source of humility. Filial reverence, that means like childlike reverence. True piety, patience in every tribulation, fervent prayers, constancy in suffering and confessing the truth, and of solid rejoicing in God. Okay, now think about that. During the Reformation, when the Reformers taught that assurance is not something that we can only know by some kind of special divine revelation where God, you know, sends us an angel to to tell us that we've we've done enough to satisfy his demands and that we we are justified in going to heaven— They taught that knowing that you have eternal life is the normal condition of a Christian. In fact, that's why we have the scriptures. Uh, These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you would know that you have eternal life. So knowing that we're saved, knowing that we have eternal life is the normal condition of a Christian. And yet many true believers uh, that ought to have more assurance really struggle to have assurance. And the thing is, so far from making us lazy or causing us to just say, Hey, I'm assured I'm going to heaven. I can just live like a dog and do whatever I want. It's just the opposite of that. It's always been the opposite of that. And in fact, the Judaizers of Galatia and uh, the Pelagians against uh, Augustine and those that followed his position, the Rome against the reformers, um, the Arminians against the Calvinists, they all said the same things. If you guys teach this stuff, people are going to live like dogs. They didn't understand the life-transforming power that these glorious truths really have. The incentive to be humble and to follow Christ and to fight sin is precisely that I know I have eternal life. It's that I know that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, that my sins can never be brought against me, and that I am clothed in his divine righteousness before God and always will be. It doesn't mean... I mean, logically, someone might say, well, cool, if God i like to sin god likes to forgive sounds like a good relationship to me and what what does that discard what does that not take into consideration the new birth the new nature that we have the new desires that we have as christians so the stronger assurance someone has the more godly they will strive to be they will be more fervent in their prayers they will be more constant Uh, And their love for the Lord in the face of tribulations, in the face of betrayal, in the face of hardship and pain and sickness and everything else. It goes on. So that the consideration of this benefit should serve as an incentive to the serious and constant practice of gratitude and good works. As appears from the testimonies of scripture and the examples of the saints. You see, it is an incentive to the serious and constant practice of gratitude and good works having assurance having a robust sense of assurance i know that i have eternal life and the holy spirit bears witness with me it says in romans eight fifteen and following bears witness with my spirit that i am a child of god that the cross of christ is enough to save even me from my christian failure that is an incentive to be godly that is an incentive to walk in the spirit that's an incentive to hate sin and to put it to death and to strive against it in fact the stronger someone's assurance the more fervency they will have to the I love that the the serious and constant practice of gratitude and good works okay that's this is going article 12 what a what a glorious one man okay now listen Article 13, here's kind of the other side. I was kind of hinting at it before. Assurance, no inducement to carelessness. Neither does renewed confidence of persevering produce licentiousness or a disregard of piety in those who are recovered from backsliding. But it renders them much more careful and solicitous to continue in the ways of the Lord, which he has ordained, that they who walk therein may keep the assurance of persevering, lest on account of their abuse of his fatherly kindness... God should turn away his gracious countenance from them to behold which is to the godly dearer than life and the withdrawal of which is more bitter than death and they in consequence thereof should fall into more grievous torments of conscience. Okay, having your assurance renewed and a sense of persevering in it, that's not going to produce licentiousness in, the, in those that truly know what that's talking about. Okay, it's going to make them more careful. When you have that stronger sense of, of assurance, when it's been hurt and disrupted by a sin that you've committed and are are grieving over, it's going to make you even more watchful against that sin next time. When you recover your assurance, when it's been interrupted by a grievous fall into sin, you're you're going to be more careful now. You're going to think, what now? What thought processes or what steps did I take that where where I I ended up committing this terrible sin of mine? Okay, let's make sure that never happens again. Let's be more aggressive this time. Let's cut off and pluck out. Let's make sure that we flee from idolatry now. Okay, that's a great one, man. I just need to highlight the whole canons of Dort. If I if I yeah. Okay, Article 14. God's use of means in perseverance. And as it has pleased God by the preaching of the gospel to begin this work of grace in us, so he preserves, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word. By meditation thereon, and by exhortations, threatenings, and promises thereof, and by the use of the sacraments. (laughs) This is one one thing um, so many people over the years have asked me the question. Like people, Federal Vision, people taken in by that false doctrine, um, as well as Armenians and Wesleyans that I've known through the years. Why does scripture warn us about falling away if it's not really possible? If a truly elect, regenerate, born-again person cannot fall away... Why are there warnings? Okay, two reasons. Really easy. Number one, the apostles, when they wrote those warnings, they did not have infallible knowledge of their audiences. Number two, God uses moral means to bring about his desired ends. I mean, how, what good would it do for me to stand up in, in a pulpit and say, all right, if you're elect, God's going to save you. It's all good. If you're not, you're going to hell. All right, let's pray. It's not how it works. God uses means. He uses warnings that the elect will listen to that the regenerate will heed, they will not become hard-hearted at them. God preserves and perfects that work in his people by the hearing and reading of his word. And that's why preaching of the word of God has long stood at the center of Christian worship. Especially after the Reformation, It it was the center of Christian worship. Preaching, hearing the word of God read and preached. And meditating thereon. To to meditate on something means to speak it again and again and again in your mind, by the exhortations, threatenings, and promises of Scripture, and by the use of the sacraments. That's why you need to be there. I just, you know, tell people all the time. I've I've been struggling with assurance. I'm struggling with this sin. Struggling with that sin. Do you make sure you're there? You know, for church and that you're prayed up. You know, that's one of the means of grace. Is the, the Word of God and. Uh, the sacraments. Do you make sure you are always there when your church does communion? You know, that's that's a means of grace. That's one of the means by which God strengthens us against temptation and strengthens us in our assurance. Uh, he gives us those sensible signs that we can touch and taste uh, in the Lord's Supper. He uses that to assure us, to to point us to what those signs signify, to point us to Christ, to His body and blood, to what He did when He died for our sins. You know, do you do you make use of the means? You know, that's one thing. We fall into sin. Actually, that's not not the best way of putting it. We march with our eyes wide open into sin uh, because we're not very strong in the grace of God. Because we neglect the means of our own preservation. And that's why daily scripture reading and meditation and and things like that. One one thing I just would share with you, I've been doing lately. um, One thing I like to do in the early morning, and I'm blessed in that I'm always the first one up in my house. Everybody sleeps at least an hour after I get up. So when I get up, straighten up the kitchen a little bit, and then go for a walk in my backyard. And the sunrise in my backyard with the cow pasture back there and everything is very pretty. And I walk in the, the early dusk hours as the sun is just starting to come up and it's starting to light up the sky and the trees and stuff. It's a beautiful, quiet, serene place. I walk around back there. One thing I've been doing, um, in addition to praying, is just reciting. Reciting every bit of scripture that I can remember from memory. Just saying, what all do I know? And just saying it out loud reciting you know psalm 23 the lord's prayer psalm 1 and other passages that that i've memorized over the years and just hearing myself speak the word of god it's just a great way to kind of start the day and that's been an encouraging thing that's really what the the hebrew of psalm 1 means in in his law he meditates day and night that means he speaks it to himself constantly in his mind okay that's that's an important exercise that's something i wish i would have started doing Sooner, but just saying what I know from Scripture. Sometimes I'll recite sections of the Westminster Shorter Catechism out loud. Okay? Just hearing myself say the truth like that is is a, a good thing. Okay, Article 15. Contrasting reactions to the teaching of perseverance, okay, this is good. The carnal mind, that's the unconverted mind, is unable to comprehend this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and the certainty thereof, which God has most abundantly revealed in his word, for the glory of his name and the consolation of pious souls in which he impresses upon the hearts of believers. Satan abhors it. The world ridicules it. The ignorant and hypocritical abuse it. And the heretics oppose it. <laughs> That's a great sentence. Listen to that again. This this beautiful, glorious, revealed truth that God, once he effectually calls someone, they, he who begins the good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. The carnal mind doesn't get it. it doesn't get this idea. Okay? And... <clears throat> Satan abhors it, the world ridicules it, the ignorant and hypocritical abuse it, they turn it into a license to sin, it's all under the blood, I can do whatever I want, and the heretics oppose it, like the Arminians, okay, they were condemned as heretics here, but the bride of Christ has always most tenderly loved and constantly defended it as an inestimable estimable treasure, and God, against whom neither counsel nor strength can prevail, will dispose her so to continue to the end. Now to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Okay, now they move into the rejection of errors. Okay, so there's the biblical doctrine. Uh, we started last time and just finished the, the articles that they set forth. Now they move into, we reject the errors of those who teach this stuff. Okay, having set forth the Orthodox teaching, the Synod, the Synod of Dort, rejects the errors of those who teach, <clears throat> that the perseverance of the true believers is not a fruit of election or a gift of God gained by the death of Christ but a condition of the new covenant which as they declare man before his decisive election and justification must fulfill through his free will in other words perseverance to the armenians it's not a fruit of election because there is no doctrine of election God ha- does not have an elect people he elects to save those who use their free will to believe so of course perseverance perseverance of the saints would be an unbiblical truth to them it would be something that they would reject <clears throat> because free will decision gets you in it would follow a free will decision can get you out right so perseverance it's not something that they can really hold to <clears throat> instead perseverance is something that we do not because of, of the fruit of election not because of god's work but we achieve it by our free will. I would like to, to tell you, based upon biblical texts and biblical truth, if that were the case, there will be one in heaven, Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to heaven, if that's true. So thankfully, it's not true. For the Holy Scripture testifies that this follows out of election and is given the elect in virtue of the death, the resurrection, and intercession of Christ. Okay, Romans eleven seven. But the elect obtained it. But the election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Likewise, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? that's security if jesus christ died for someone no charge can be brought against them god will justify them on the day of judgment christ that died for them is risen he's at the right hand of god he intercedes for us and who is the us there god's elect think about that okay who shall lay anything to the charge of god's elect who can bring a charge of sin or wrongdoing or failure against one of God's elect when Christ died for them and intercedes for us, for the elect. Who will separate us, who is us, the elect, from the love of Christ? Those are all rhetorical questions, of course. The answer is no one. No one can. In that passage there in Romans 8, it goes on, You know, I am persuaded, I am convinced. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything that is present or anything to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's security. That's security. That's a glorious one. Alright. They also reject the errors of those who teach that God does indeed provide the believer with sufficient powers to persevere and is ever ready to preserve these in him if he will do his duty but that, though all things which are necessary to persevere in faith and which God will use to, to preserve faith are made use of, even then, it ever depends on the pleasure of the will, whether it will persevere or not. You hear that? The The, the Armenian system is man, 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 man. It is a man-centered, anthropocentric theology. It's your God, God, you know, he... He does his best you know, to try to save as many as possible without violating their free will. And that's just not biblical, folks. God has his elect people. and Jesus came to save his elect people. He came to give eternal life to as many as his Father gave him. John 17, verse 2, I know my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And he told his hearers at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 10, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as a a, a guy a, a guy that used to do street witnessing, uh, he was actually killed in the l a riots i can 't remember what that guy 's name was, but he, he used to say um, you don 't say uh, baba to become a sheep you say baba because you are one that 's the way it is with the lord that 's the way it is with the Lord now listen to their response to this error for this idea contains an outspoken pelagianism see what was what was the armenian what was the Armenian burden here? The decisive factor is man. God does his thing. He, he'll, you can always count on him to make it possible. But man is the decisive factor. And the Augustinian biblical position that was taught by Moses and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Habakkuk and Malachi and Jeremiah and David and the Old Testament, the New Testament, by Christ, by the apostles, is that it is God who saves God is the decisive factor. God is the one who glorifies his grace in the salvation of his elect people. This idea that God makes it all possible and the the means are there, but it depends on the pleasure of the will of man, whether it's going to work or not. they They say this idea contains an outspoken Pelagianism. And while it would make men free, it makes them robbers of God's honor, contrary to the prevailing agreement of the evangelical doctrine, which takes from man all cause of boasting, and ascribes all the praise for this favor to the grace of God alone. And contrary to the apostle, who declares that it is God who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians one eight. Who confirms us to the end? Who completes the work that he starts in us? God. It is not man, it's God. And what is constantly in scripture excluded from the table? Boasting. If something that I do, or something that I did, independently of God is the decisive factor then i would have every reason to boast that i'm in heaven yeah those blokes down there in hell they didn't make use of the of the means of preservation that i did i did what they didn't do and that's why i'm here and a share of glory for salvation is going to be mine that's nonsense. Think of Ephesians 1 verse 6. Why does God save sinners? Why does he unconditionally elect them before the foundation of the world? Romans nine eleven. Before the twins had done anything good or bad. Before they were born. Before they had done anything good or bad. In order that the purpose of God and election would stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, to Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. God elects who he's going to save. Why does he do it? Ephesians 1 verse 6 tells us to the praise of the glory of his grace. Not God makes it all possible and opens up a door, opens up a way and by his grace alone he does that but then man independently has got to do this, that and the other thing to make it work. That wouldn't be to the praise of the glory of his grace then would it? No it would not. They also reject the errors of those who teach that the true believers and regenerate not only can fall from justifying faith and likewise from grace and salvation wholly and to the end, but indeed often do fall from this and are lost forever. Okay, the Arminians, you know, were, some of them were saying a true Christian, someone who is regenerated, born again by God's Spirit, justified before God, united to Christ by faith alone, can lose their salvation. Listen to their response. For this conception makes powerless the grace, justification, regeneration, and continued preservation by Christ. Contrary to the express words of the apostle that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. A lot of people don't notice things like that when they read scripture. Listen to that. If you're justified by Christ's blood, you will die be saved from the wrath of God. You can't possibly be anything but saved from the wrath of God because if you're justified, Christ already bore it. We're justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. They go on. And contrary to the Apostle John, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For a seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And that's talking about ultimately fall away completely from the Lord. That's really what that's speaking of. The seed of God remains in him. He won't um, turn away or be lost. okay? Because he's been born of God. He has the seed of God in him. And also contrary to the words of Jesus Christ. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Okay, l- l- think about it. Can you have eternal life, like actually have eternal e- eternal life for three weeks? Can you have eternal life for 30 years and lose it? It's not eternal life then, is it? You can't. They shall never perish. Perish. They also reject the errors of those who teach that true believers and regenerate people can sin the sin unto death or against the Holy Spirit. And that's in 1 John chapter 5. It's a difficult passage. Since the same Apostle John, after having spoken in the 5th chapter of his 1st epistle in verses 16 and 17 of those who sin unto death and having forbidden to pray for them, immediately adds to this in verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Meaning, they don't do this. They don't commit the sin unto death. Now, it is hard to determine exactly what John was talking about. Probably he's referring to a specific form of Christological heresy because that's really one of John's great burdens in First John, and even in the Gospel of John, um, is the reality, the physical reality of the Incarnation because docetism was already coming on the scene, the, the denial that Jesus had a real body. And uh, John understood how significant that was, how essential that is. And so the sin unto death is probably a form of Christological heresy where you deny the incarnation or something like that. But verse 18 of 1 John chapter 5 says, We know that whosoever is born of God does not sin like this. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one toucheth him not. Okay, the synod also rejects the errors of those who teach that without a special revelation, we can have no certainty of future perseverance in this life. And that's probably really a direct shot at Rome. For by this doctrine, the sure comfort of true believers is taken away in this life, and the doubts of the papists are again introduced into the church. While the Holy Scriptures constantly deduce this assurance, not from a special and extraordinary revelation, but from the marks proper to the children of God, and from the very constant promises of God, so especially the Apostle Paul says, "...nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." See. You don't need God to send you know, the angel Gabriel to say, all right, you've finally done enough good works. You you can have assurance you're going to heaven. We have the testimony of scripture. We have the testimony of the word of God. When we see the fruits of election, when we see true faith in Christ, when we see a genuine sorrow for sin, a hunger for the word of God, when we see those things, we can have assurance. We don't need special a special, additional special revelation from God. We have special revelation in scripture, but we don't need anything in addition to that. And John declares, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he hath given us. Okay, it goes on. The Synod rejects the errors of those who teach that the doctrine of the certainty of perseverance and of salvation from its own character and nature is a cause of indolence and is injurious to godliness, good morals, prayer, and other holy exercises, but that on the contrary it is praiseworthy to doubt. There are people that think that, that it's, it's pious, it's pious to doubt, to have doubt of my salvation and that being uh, like, think of a Christian's dialogue with ignorance in the Pilgrim's Progress, when a Christian shares with him the certainty that he has of salvation and ignorance looks at him and says, oh, this conceit would loosen the reins of our lusts because he doesn't get it. He's an unregenerate man. He's ignorant of the righteousness of God and instead seeking to establish his own righteousness. Romans ten three and 4. Okay, listen to the response. For these show that they do not know the power of divine grace and the working of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And they contradict the apostle John, who teaches the opposite with express words in his first epistle. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope, this expectation in him, purifies himself even as he is pure. You hear that? The scripture connects a knowledge that we're going to heaven with a desire to purify yourself. Okay? it does. It's not a, a cause of indolence. It's not injurious to godliness, good morals, or prayer, or holy exercises. Okay? It's not praiseworthy to doubt your salvation. <clears throat> they go on. Furthermore, these are contradicted by the example of the saints, both of the Old and the New Testament, who, though they were assured of their perseverance and salvation, were nevertheless constant in prayers and other exercises of godliness. I mean just think of numerous examples. Job Job, I know my Redeemer lives, he said. I know he lives. And I know that when this skin is destroyed, when my flesh is destroyed, that I shall stand upon the earth and look at him. I shall behold him with these eyes and not another. I know my Redeemer lives. I know I'm going to see him. I know I'm going to be resurrected one day. I know that I'm going to go be with him when I die. And Job was constant in his prayers and in his worship of God. The trials just pointed him more to the Lord, just showed Christ was his first love. His Redeemer was his first love. It always, He always was. They also reject the errors of those who teach, that the faith of those who believe for a time does not differ from justifying and saving faith except only in duration. This is a, a massively important one. Think of like the Evangelical Grace Society and Bob Wilkin and the whole um, just... <laughs> The cheap grace, easy believism garbage that has led who knows how many millions of people to hell. You you walk an aisle once and pray the magic prayer. You make one little mental ascent and you can die an atheist or a Buddhist and you're still going to hell. Okay? Those who, who quote unquote believed for a time and then fell away, they never had saving faith. The scriptures themselves speak about different types of faith. Christ himself, Matthew thirteen twenty, Luke 8, 13, and in other places, evidently notes, besides this duration, a threefold difference between those who believe only for a time and true believers. When he declares that the former receive the seed in stony ground, but the latter in the good ground or heart, that the former are without root, but the latter have a firm root, that the former are without fruit, but the latter bring forth their fruit in various measure with constancy and steadfastness. Okay, the error, because the Arminians and the easy-believers people like like the evangelical grace or whatever it's called society the the bob wilkin group do not believe there's such a thing as false faith all faith is saving faith if you if you tip your hat to jesus once you're good you're going to heaven that all faith is exactly the same why because they think it arises from man but you see there's a faith that is a sovereign gift of god that is the result of the effectual call of god okay where does faith come from It comes from Christ. It comes from God. What what is faith in Jesus Christ? I love the the answer to the shorter catechism. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. See, prior to understanding this, I would have said, faith in Jesus Christ is my free will contribution that makes the whole thing work. It's not that. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. Grace. Whereby we receive, we not only assent to the truth of the gospel, but we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. It's faith in Jesus Christ, not my free will, independent contribution that is the trigger that makes the whole thing work, it's a saving grace. As uh, the great Thomas Brooks uh, put it uh, faith in Christ, repentance unto life are fruits that groweth not in nature's garden. They only come from on high. And if you think otherwise, you are miserably deluded. Okay, we also reject the errors of those who teach that it is not absurd that one having lost his first regeneration is again and even often born anew. (laughs) Yeah, like you can be born again 25 times. For these deny by this doctrine the incorruptible... ...ness of the seed of god whereby we are born again contrary to the testimony of the apostle peter being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible isn't that glorious that that passage in uh first peter one we're born again that's actually a really really important passage uh, because it says how we're born again okay listen um we're or, or yeah first peter first peter 1 23 and look at the verse before it here too this is a great text of scripture since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren love one another fervently with a pure heart having been born again not of corruptible seed but incorruptible through the word of god which lives and abides forever romans ten seventeen. faith comes from where man faith comes from hearing it's like god has ordained the ear the the divine organ through which regeneration will come to us and obviously someone who's deaf can can understand the gospel that's not what it's talking about it's not saying you have to have the ability to hear or to be to be saved but faith comes from hearing you got to hear the gospel you got to hear it and that's where faith comes from and then one last one uh, john 1 verse 12 uh, couldn't be clearer but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god to those who believe in his name well see obviously that the belief in jesus there came independently of god. Look at the next verse who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god well, who so who received him who became children of god and who believed in him those who were born not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god think of romans 9 16 it is therefore not of the willing one or the running one sorry neil if you're jogging right now <laughs> that's an inside joke there's a guy a guy at church here apparently he was like he was working out and he was listening to the the thing i did on first timothy 4 about um physical or bodily exercise profits a little and he's like exercising and then he was listening to me uh, talk about Romans 9, 16. It is not of him who runs while he was running. So he's like, every time he's trying to do something, I, I say something that contradicts what he's trying to do. So it's kind of funny. Okay, but what is the point here? Where does faith come from? It comes from the new birth. And where does that new birth come from? From God. God's got to change the heart. And once he changes that heart, it never changes back to being a heart of stone. Ever. Finally, we reject the errors of those who teach that Christ has in no place prayed that believers should infallibly continue in faith. For they contradict Christ himself who says, I made supplication for thee, for Simon Peter, that thy faith may not fail. Luke twenty-two, thirty-two. And the evangelist John, who declares that Christ has not prayed for the apostles only, but also for those who through their word would believe. John 17, 11, 15, and 20. Holy Father, keep them in thy name. And I pray not that thou shouldst take them from the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil one. Who keeps us? Who keeps us? It is God who keeps us. God keeps us. Okay, one more, one more passage. 1 Peter 1 verses 3-5. through five. Blessed be the God and Father of... I think Peter who wrote this was in a special position to understand that his faith in Christ never failed for one and only one reason, because Jesus prayed it wouldn't. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept. By the power of God through faith, we're kept by the power of God that is a a uh, passive participle. We are guarded, protected, we are kept by god's dunamis, by his power, not ours, but by god's power through faith, dia pistaos unto salvation so what is the means by which we are preserved preserved in our Christian faith and preserved as children of God? We're kept by the power of God through faith. Okay, we're not kept by the power of our faith, hopefully to the end. We're kept by God's power through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the biblical truth. No one can be a true Christian unless they're one of God's elect, effectually called, born again, justified, united to Christ. And when God lays hold of someone, he never, ever, ever lets them go. Thank you for watching or for listening. Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can visit us on the web at com, where all the sermons and podcasts are put into our sermon audio feed, which is accessible in iTunes as well as the podcast app. You are welcome to join us any Sunday morning for Sunday school for all ages at 10 a.m. and then worship for everyone at 11 a.m. If you ever have any questions about the Christian faith or the Bible, you can email me at pastor at org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.